Today, as we focus on the sanctity of human life, we're going to turn our attention to the beginning. And we're going to look at the first book in the Bible and look at the first chapter in that book. It's the story of creation. And I just want us to look at a few verses this morning. We'll turn our attention to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Often we get so removed from our beginnings that we forget who we are and where we've come from. That's what happened to the Israelites. The Israelites, when the book of Genesis was written, was written by Moses, but it was written to a group of people that had lost their way. And the reason they had lost their way is because they had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten where they'd come from. They had forgotten their God. They had forgotten that they had been created and fashioned by God and created in the very image of God. This was a people that had been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years forgetting God, forgetting where they came from, forgetting their story, and forgetting how they were made. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, hear the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our own image and our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. On December 7th, 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said that this will be a day that lives in infamy. December 7th, 1941, he was referring to the bombing of Pearl Harbor that left 2,400 people dead, a day that will certainly live in infamy. But I want to give you another day that will live in infamy. January 22nd, 1973 is a day that will certainly live in infamy because it's on January 22nd, 1973 that we recognize that 2,400 people were dead, but that we recognize that on January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court legalized abortion on demand in every state, and since then, we have lost 60 million people. January 22nd, 1973, certainly a day that will live in infamy. Since then, over 60 million children have been aborted. I think it's safe to say that this is a holocaust of epic proportions. 
Washington Post a few years ago wrote an op-ed and they said, we need to stop calling abortion a difficult decision because it's not a moral decision, it's not an ethical decision, it's actually not a hard choice because the fetus is not a human being. In fact, there should be no protection for children. We need to stop treating it as a difficult decision. Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court actually went as far as admitting that abortion laws have been advanced to cut down, this is her quote, abortion laws in our country have been advanced to cut down on the populations of people that we don't want too many of. Did you know that in our country alone, 92% of Down syndrome children have been aborted. 92% of Down syndrome children have been aborted. So what do we do? In light of those stats, in light of that reality, what do we do? Do we truly have any hope? Well, I want to propose this this morning. That if we as a church are going to have any hope in the midst of such a bleak reality, if we are going to be a church that has any hope in the midst of such darkness, we have to be a church that always goes back to the beginning. We have to be a church that goes back to the beginning and goes back to the beginning of creation. And I want to propose that what we read in Genesis 1 is the foundation that we must rest upon. You see, I want to make the proposal this morning that the image of God, that the teaching that we are created in the image of God is the foundation and the only foundation for the sanctity of human life. That if we as a church and we as a people lose sight that all people are created in the image of God from the moment of conception, if we lose that reality and lose that truth, we will no longer have any foundation to stand on when it comes to the sanctity of human life. So for this morning, I want to give you two ideas, two takeaways concerning the image of God, and then several things that you can begin to do tomorrow. Two things concerning the image of God as the foundation of the sanctity of human life, and then several things that you can begin to do tomorrow. The first idea I want to present to you this morning is the significance of the image of God. The significance of the image of God as it's presented to us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. God says, he, he says that we will make man in whose image? In our image and in our likeness. He creates male and female. And it tells us the significance of the image of God, the significance of all people being created in the image of God is this, that this is where we find our ultimate worth and value. The reason it is so significant that we remember that all people are created in the image of God is because this is fundamentally where we find our significance and our value. We do not find our significance and value in our culture or in our world or what the world says of us, but we find as human beings our worth and our value and our significance in one place and one place alone. And that is in the reality that we have been created in the image of God from the moment of conception. The unborn child 
is created in the image of God, and therefore that child has dignity and worth and value, unlike anything this world could ever grant it. I've mentioned it before, but in the Greco-Roman world, before Christianity was widespread, that ideas of abortion and infanticide were widespread. These are nothing new to civilization. Widows were neglected and homeless were left for dead. But what changed? Thousands of years ago, what changed was the doctrine and the teaching of the image of God when Christianity began to spread across the known world at the time and Christianity became the official religion of the empire and the official religion of the day. It was the doctrine of the image of God that changed everything and turned civilization upside down. Ultimately, when people began to understand the story of Christianity. They began to understand the reality that all people are created in the image of God. Eventually, we began to see the eradication of abortion and infanticide. Widows were eventually no longer neglected but brought in. Homeless were cared for. Why? Because of the teaching of the image of God. We have to remember the significance of the image of God in all people. That's why later, a few chapters later in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9, God says, I will hold you accountable for taking the life of another. I will hold you accountable because the one that you are bringing death to is one that is created in my image and in my likeness. Brian Turney, who is a professor of medieval history at Cornell University, a self-proclaimed agnostic, said this, the idea of human rights came from one place and one place alone. The idea of human rights came from the Bible and came into the university and educational systems through the church. It is because of the church and because of the word of God laying out the foundation that all people are created in the image and likeness of God which has given civilization and society the basic human and civil rights that we enjoy today. But I want to ask you this question. What happens to a society? What happens to a people when they lose their idea about God? What happens to a people and a society and a civilization when they begin to drift away from God or remove God from society and remove God from the proverbial public square? I'll tell you what happened. Because 40 or 50 years ago, we were told that you can have a society that, that honors basic human and civil rights without God in the center of it all. And the church asked, well, how can you still have human and civil rights without God being at the center? And, and politicians and people that were entering the, the educational system said it's very simple. As long as we believe that human beings have the capacity to reason and rationalize, we will still always have basic human and civil rights. You don't need God to have rights to life. But they didn't account for this. 
If human rights are based on a human's capacity to reason and rationalize, I ask you this this morning, how about the unborn baby that does not have the capacity to reason or rationalize? How about born babies? How about the severely disabled? How about the elderly that suffer from dementia and Alzheimer's? How about the homeless that has mental illness? You see, human and civil rights cannot be based upon a human being's ability and capacity to reason and rationalize. It must be solely based on the idea that all people are created in the image of God. The right to life for all people will certainly never exist and it will certainly never exist for the unborn when people do not understand that everyone has been created in God's image, we must return to understand the significance of the image of God. Second thing, if that is the significance of the image of God, that we are all created, and that is the foundation for the sanctity of human life, then what ultimately is the purpose of the image of God? In verse 28, it says that God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is known as the cultural mandate, but what this tells us is that God was not content with just a male and a female that were created in the image and likeness of God. He He wanted the male and female to go out to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. Why? In order for the whole earth to be filled with the glory of God. You see, as image bearers created in the image and likeness of God, we bear the image and likeness of God and therefore demonstrate and declare through our lives the glory of God. We are image bearers that are spreading the glory of God to the very ends of the earth. And that is ultimately what fuels our mission as a church. That is the purpose of the image of God. Therefore, what else could motivate me to love my neighbor? What motivates me to love my neighbor is that my neighbor, although they might be different from me, has been created in the image and likeness of God. That's what moves me and motivates me to fight for the life of the unborn child because that unborn child has been created in the image of God. It's what moves us and motivates us to fight for the life of the elderly and the widow and the disabled, and all those in our culture and our community that have been marginalized, the vulnerables of our society. Why? What fuels our mission as a church is the teaching of the image of God. It is the image of God that informs the mission of God. As the Latins say, the Imago Dei informs and fuels the Missio Dei. Image of God leads to the mission of God. And the question that every church must wrestle with is that their mission will either lead to a culture of life or their mission, if they choose to neglect it and to neglect this call, will lead to a culture of death. Will we be a church that champions the lives of those that are vulnerable and marginalized, the lives of the unborn? and create a culture throughout Fort Lauderdale and South Florida and through it to the ends of the world that champions life for those that cannot fight for their own lives. The purpose of the image of God. So what can we do as a church? If we understand the significance of the image of God and we understand the purpose of the image of God as the foundation for the sanctity of human life, 
What can we do beginning tomorrow? First thing, we can repent. Now you might say that's a bold word. I've never, I've, I've, never, I've never gone through with abortion. I've never aided in abortion. What, what do I need to repent from? I'll tell you what we need to repent from. We need to repent from being indifferent. Do you know the majority of the North American church, their greatest problem is not that they're an advocate for abortion, and it's not that what they would call, what Washington would call being pro-choice. The greatest problem in the North American church is just indifference and apathy. And we can repent. We can repent from being indifferent. You might remember the story. It happened right here in South Florida many years ago. There was a nun. She was standing vigil in front of, of an abortion clinic. She was prosecuted by, at that time, our attorney general for standing in front of an abortion clinic. She would intervene to help young girls make a better choice and she was sentenced and she was taken to jail and one of the reporters asked her, why would you do this? You have, you have the, the life of ministry that you have committed your life to. Why would you do this? And she said, what compelled me was fear. And the reporter said, fear? What did you fear? She said, well, when I was a little child, my brother and I were playing in the backyard and we lived on the water and my brother got too close to uh, the bank of the river and he, and he fell in and I could see him being swept away and he was screaming for someone to save him and I didn't know what to do but in the midst of fear and seeing my brother being swept away, I jumped in and I saved him. And I'll tell you, 30 years later, in the face of abortion, my greatest fear is to absolutely do nothing. I will not do nothing. Will we be a church that says we will not do nothing? That is not a choice. That is not an option for our church and for the people of God at Coral Ridge to stand by idly. Apathy and indifference. The fear of doing nothing. God's people in the face of evil are salt and light. The second thing that we can do is pray. If this is truly, as Paul says, not a political issue, but it's so much more than that, if this is not a battle of, against flesh and blood, but this is ultimately a spiritual battle to protect the life of the unborn and to protect the lives of those that cannot defend themselves, this is certainly a spiritual battle, and we must be a church that is on its knees. Praying. Praying for those that are making decisions on our behalf. Praying for those like Nancy and Lori, those at Hope Women's Center, those at Broward Right to Life, those that are leading the charge. Praying. Praying on our knees. Third thing that we can do, be informed. Do you know last year when I preached on this issue and I announced that since 1973 roughly 60 million babies have been aborted I cannot tell you how many people came up to me and said I had no idea I had no idea but the numbers are there the numbers are there we need to be a people that are well informed and know what the issues are at hand we need to know what the cultural moment of our day is and how we can be better informed 
Know what the stats are. Know what's at stake. Know what the bills are that are being passed. Know what to do when we go out and then actually go out and vote based on the information that we have. We need to be a congregation that is well informed. Fourth, we need to get involved. We need to volunteer. We need to give. Nancy announced that there's a, a, a fourth, uh, fourth center being opened. What are we going to do to support that? How are we going to give? Are we going to take home a, a baby bottle? Are we going to volunteer? There's a, a banquet for hope coming up in April. Are we going to attend? Are we going to buy a table? We cannot be a church that simply shakes its fist at the darkness of abortion. We must be a church that responds and gets up and gets involved. We are called to be a beacon of hope and light in the midst of darkness. And then lastly, and then lastly, and most importantly, we can offer hope. We can offer hope. I've said it before and I'll say it again that Jesus Christ through his church is the hope of the world. Jesus Christ through his church is the hope of the world and the most important thing we can do in the face of evil and darkness is offer hope. But the question is this in closing, where do we find this hope? Where is the ultimate hope for this issue? It's the restoration of the image. If you've driven recently on the turnpike, you might be familiar with the billboard that reads, abortion stops a beating heart. That's only partially true. I'd like the billboard to read that abortion stops two hearts. It stops a beating heart and it crushes a soul. Because not only does abortion stop a beating heart, but it crushes the soul of the mother that goes through that abortion. And the ones that we can offer hope to this morning and tomorrow and the next day and the following day is to all of those moms and to all those women and now thankfully to hope all of those dads that are encountering this decision that they have to make. A decision of an unplanned pregnancy. A decision that they never planned on and never counted on and that we can offer hope in the midst of this decision. And I know in a church like this, because I've talked to some of you, that there are women in this congregation this morning that have gone and had an abortion. And I know there are women in this church that might even this morning be contemplating abortion. And there is hope for you this morning. Because you come into this place and you might feel like you want to get underneath your pew this morning. And I understand because you come in with this idea of the image of God and your image has been broken. Your image is not what it once was. You come in with an image that is shamed and full of guilt and full of sin and full of brokenness and you have no idea where to turn and here is the hope for you this morning and the hope for all of those women and all of those men that are facing this decision tomorrow and the next day that the message of the gospel is this that the image that is broken can be restored through the person of Jesus Christ you see the message of the gospel is this that the perfect image bearer Jesus Christ came down and he takes on your broken image and he exchanges it for a perfect one. He exchanges it for a clean image. In fact, 2 Corinthians 
tells us that he who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, became sin so that we might become the what? The righteousness of God. And so for you this morning, if you've come into this place broken and weary and heavy laden, full of guilt and full of shame, look no further than to the cross of Jesus Christ for healing and for hope. The gospel restores and then we can find our ultimate worth in the one who restores our image through the person of Jesus Christ. There's good news this morning for those that have either had an abortion or contemplating abortion. Because of Jesus, you no longer have to wear the scarlet letter because Jesus wears the scarlet letter for you. But this good news is not just for some. The good news of a restored image is for all that are longing for hope this morning. You see, the good news this morning is not just good news for some, but it's for all that place their faith and their hope and trust in Jesus Christ, the perfect image bearer who through his death on the cross became the perfect burden bearer and he will carry your burdens this morning. The Bible says for all those that become, that are born again, for all those except Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior, you can have the hope of heaven this morning and walk out of this place and walk out of this church as a new creation. That promise can be for you this morning. Let me close with this. Detroit, 1987. For those that lived in Detroit at the time, you know what I'm about to talk about. 30 years ago, Northwest Flight takes off at 8.20 at night, but it never actually took off. Shortly after takeoff, that flight out of Detroit, Northwest Airlines, quickly plummeted to the ground after takeoff. 154 dead. Every passenger gone, except for one. How did that one survive? That one that survived that plane crash that evening was a little girl by the name of Celia Chacon, a little girl. She was flying with her daddy and her mama and her brother. There was only one witness to how she survived. She was five years old at the time. And they asked her, Celia, how did you survive? How did it happen? She said, before the plane was about to crash, my mother unbuckled her seatbelt and she threw herself on top of me. She risked her life for me. That is a picture of fierce love. And would we love in such a way? Would we love in such a way the unborn? Would we love in such a way those girls this morning that are wrestling with an unplanned pregnancy? Would we love them in such a way with such a fierce love that we would be even willing to lay down our lives for them? Because it will be that fierce love that overwhelms South Florida and Broward County and beyond. I said it last year, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it the next year, and I'll say it the next year. But you know what my dream is? My dream is this, and it's simple. That my grandkids, my grandkids would one day walk through Fort Lauderdale and they would hear about abortion and it would be such a distant memory and it would be such a thing of the past 
that they would come to me and they would say, what were you all thinking? It would sound so barbaric and so horrific, they would say, what were you thinking? And that they could not imagine this generation or any generation to come, allowing it to happen ever again. I dream of a generation that rises up and tells the world that this is not your world but that this is my father's world. And although there appears to be a lot wrong, we represent the one who makes all things right.